did you know that only 20% of land where the Civil War was fought is actually preserved? Only 20%. I didn't know it was that low. But I received these numbers from the American Battlefield Trust, and it is astounding. And if you would like to help preserve more battlefield land where the Civil War was fought, you can go to battlefields.org, check out the American Battlefield Trust, become a member. There are different tiers that you can do that in. And also, you can make a donation outright, like we did for the Tattooed Historian last year. It's a great way to preserve our battlefields, a great way to preserve not only Civil War battlefields, but also those of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Now, let's get on with the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Tattooed Historian Show. I am so thankful that you tuned in to this episode. This one is going to be great. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week, I speak with Jake Wynn. He is the Director of Interpretation at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Jake is a great friend. He is very excited about this topic. Uh, He's one of those guys where you get him started and you just let him roll. I love that in a historian. He's very passionate about what he does, and you can hear that in his voice when we go through this podcast. And basically, I went in and I said to Jake, I know that you do things with the Museum of Civil War Medicine, but is there anything else that you're interested in? And he actually pointed out that he was very interested in labor history. And one of the things that he wanted to talk about, or the major thing he wanted to talk about, was a coal miners' rebellion in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, during the Civil War. I thought it was a very interesting topic because we don't normally hear about those kind of things going on, and this was a very, very interesting topic. It was a part of the world that I've traveled through and Jake has done a lot of research in, uh, and it's something that you don't hear about. You're going to find out why this small rebellion took place. Who was involved in this rebellion? And how is this event remembered in historical memory? How is it remembered either through tablets or statues, etc.? Is it even remembered that way? Or has it been erased, basically, as far as historical memory is concerned within these areas? It is a very interesting topic, and it's one that I think that you will enjoy. You will get a lot out of it. It's not only a topic about labor history. It's a topic about how these local peoples were connected to a war effort. And that's a very interesting topic. How could they have been powerful enough to influence the thought process of those in power? Very interesting uh, podcast that's coming up. I hope you'll enjoy it. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Give me some ratings. Let me know what your thoughts are on it. But again, this talk with Jake Wynn was one of my favorites that I've had so far. He's very knowledgeable. He's very passionate. And I can't wait to hear your feedback on this particular episode. So again, here is my friend, Jake Wynn, Director of Interpretation at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, talking about a coal miners rebellion in Skulko County during the Civil War. everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm in Frederick, Maryland with my buddy Jake Wynn, and we are recording this at the National Civil War uh, Medical Museum. And uh, we did a live stream here a few months ago, and it was a good time. We had a a lot of good stuff on there. And uh, I want to thank you, Jake, for being on the podcast. And uh, please let everyone know what uh, what you do. Yeah, so uh, thank you for having me, John. I'm really excited to uh, to report record a podcast now. We've done that live stream, which was a ton of fun, um, which you can check out um, on on John's uh, on John's Facebook page. Um, 
but yeah, so we're here at Civil War Medicine Museum. This is where I've worked for about five years. Um, now a DC resident, living in Washington and working at our DC location, the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum, uh, which tells the story of of Clara Barton and her work during and immediately after the Civil War. But uh, I'm really excited to be here today to talk about some of the work that I do um, kind of as a hobby, as a right. side work. Um, I keep a blog called winninghistory.com um, where I talk about the history of the part of Pennsylvania where I grew up, um, which is kind of uh, central and eastern Pennsylvania, the mm -hmm. anthracite coal region. Um, I read a lot about the history and culture there. So I'm really excited to talk about some of that work. Uh, and yeah, let's let's dive into this. Yeah, and it's uh, Winning Histories, W-Y-N-N. Yeah, it's I like my last name. Right, yeah, <laughs> it's a play on the last name for, for all of you looking it up right now. We want you to get that address right. But uh, I talked to Jake when we were doing the live stream, and afterwards I said, hey, I want to get this podcast thing started up, and I want to talk to you about something that's historically you know, relevant to the Civil War but may not be uh, military-related per se. And I, I knew that Jake had an interest in labor history, and we just decided, well, since I'm a military historian, I don't know much about labor history. I really need to sit down with Jake and, and go over this. Uh, but what are we going to talk about this evening, Jake? We have a lot lined up. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, essentially, one of the posts that I did, or actually a series of posts I did for Winning History, uh, looked into this little-remembered uprising in, uh, in eastern Pennsylvania in October of 1862, which involves uh, kind of some conflicts that go on in the mid-19th century in this part of Pennsylvania. Uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, quite a bit about Schuylkill County, uh, Pennsylvania, which for those Civil War buffs out there um, is the uh, part of Pennsylvania that the 48th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry came from. They're the ones who, uh, uh, from the same coal mining area, they're the ones that are going to dig the mine under Petersburg, under Confederate oh, yeah. lines at Petersburg in 1864. Yeah. Um, so this area, uh, very Patriotic sends off um, many thousands of men uh, off to fight in the Civil War, um, but it's also an area that is going to see the largest kind of anti-war violence that will take place during the Civil War in Pennsylvania, um, arguably second only to what takes place in New York City in 1863. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'd like to do is kind of dive into that, tell that story, which I'm sure many of you out there have not heard before. Uh, it's not a story that's necessarily a part of our typical Civil War narrative. Uh, a lot of that is because of um, issues related to to labor and what's going on uh, in the mines of Pennsylvania in 1862. Um, but also, um we're going to dive into a little bit about how that story kind of plays in the years afterwards, because some of you may be familiar with a, a, a term, uh, the Molly Maguires, um, which is a group of, of Irishmen who get involved in violence in the 1860s and 1870s. And this story kind of plays into that as well. So what we're going to do is kind of talk about this in its historical sense, uh, in terms of the culture in this area, um, but then also tying it back to the bigger national picture of what's going on in the country uh, in 1862 and 1863, uh, and why there are so many people angry about uh Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, and why do they want to actually take up arms in some cases uh, to fight against this war mm -hmm. in a in a place as, that is as strongly supportive of the Union um, as Pennsylvania, which sends uh, the second most troops to fight the Civil War, second only to New York City. So right. that's what I'd like to talk about, and I think uh, I hope you guys will be interested in it. Uh, I, I think uh, once I've dived into this, uh, once I've gone into this, I've realized how. Uh, how powerful this story actually is. Yeah, I'm really interested in it because uh, in popular culture, we see uh, this idea that when the war starts, everyone joins up and goes off to war, and there's no big deal with you know either side having issues with people being against the war. And then like when we see a movie like Lincoln, we see that there are people in Congress who are divided on this. We see the free state of Jones and all that, and, and it's really an interesting aspect to think about right in the heart of mining country in Pennsylvania, there's this big backlash and how that can influence the labor market and the labor industry in, in Eastern Pennsylvania. So talk about how important that labor is in, in Eastern PA and the mining. Yeah. Areas. It, it's, I mean, it's, you can't, 
it's really hard to fathom how important this part of Pennsylvania was in, in 1862. Uh, you really have to go backwards um, and kind of look at the, the bigger national picture in terms of um, we think of the North as being an industrial society or, or beginning to become an industrial society in the 1860s when the Civil War takes place. And this part of Pennsylvania is fueling that industrialization. So um, to go back uh, to just after the American Revolution, um, in, 17, in the 1790s, uh, there is a, a, a man named Nico Allen who goes into uh, this part of Pennsylvania that was kind of known as St. Anthony's Wilderness. It's north and west of the Lehigh Valley in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. about 100 miles from Philadelphia. Uh, and you go up there and, I mean, it was timberland. It was dangerous because you had um, a lot of wild animals out there. And this guy goes in and uh, near this area called Sharps Mountain, which becomes uh, Pottsville, where Yingling is brewed today. Right. Um, he is going to uh, set up a campfire, and one night he uh, he sets up sets up his bed, puts his campfire there, uh, and when he wakes up in the morning, he realizes that the ground is smoldering, and he has found mm. that he put his camp uh, his campfire onto a seam of of coal. So this is a very famous story in this part of Pennsylvania. Um, and from there on, people are interested in uh, in getting this this coal out of these mountains. But it is very difficult in the 1790s and early 1800s before canals, before railroads in order to do this. Um, and so what happens is it doesn't really, the industry doesn't really develop until the 1820s. In the 1820s, um, this uh, it's very well-timed for this part of Pennsylvania to develop because by the 1820s, uh, most of the eastern seaboard is out of fuel. Um, mm -hmm. Think about this as we think about a fuel, uh, how we supply ourselves in the 21st century, uh, and thinking about ideas about um, gas and oil and trying to wean ourselves off to go to renewables. Well, what they're doing in the 1820s uh, and 1830s is trying to wean themselves off wood. Okay. Because it is getting very expensive in order to ship wood to fuel uh, cities like New York City, Philadelphia. They have run out of wood. They have literally cut down all trees within hundreds of miles of these areas to not only build, um, but also just to keep themselves warm in the winter. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is there's this uh, source of fuel. There's uh, what's known as anthracite coal. It's hard coal, um, different than um, coal in western Pennsylvania or West Virginia, which is known as bituminous coal, soft coal. Mm. Um, this hard coal uh, in eastern Pennsylvania is geographically really close to Philadelphia, to New York City, and so it's going to be a great fuel source. So what ends up happening is there's kind of this boom. Everyone moves into this area. It starts to develop towns like Pottsville, um, towns like Scranton um, and Wilkes-Barre right. will be set up and people start to move in around this industry. Um, and so by the time you get to the 1840s and the 1850s, just prior to the Civil War, this area is very rapidly industrializing. Railroads and canals have come in and these this fuel is being sent out. Uh, to these major cities on the eastern seaboard. Um, and this is not only just fueling homes, but it's also fueling industry. They're making iron. They're using it for other industrial purposes. And so this coal from this small area, um, it's just um, you know probably less than a couple hundred square mile area, um, is really important because it's fueling places like Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Washington. You can follow, you kind of look and see where this coal is being shipped to. Uh, and so it's playing a really important role. Um, around this time as well, in the 1840s and 1850s, um, a lot of the labor that is going to come in is going to be um, kind of there's two tiers. So the first tier, and this is going to become the uh, industrial, the, the kind of uh, management class. Uh, mm -hmm. These are going to be um, immigrants who are miners uh, in places like England and Wales, in some cases Germany. Uh, who have some mining experience who will come in and they are going to be the ones who are going to be the managers and the overseers right. um, and the operators who are going to manage these coal mines. Mm -hmm. And then you have, especially in the 1840s and 1850s, a working class that is going to come in. Um, these are largely going to be in this part of Pennsylvania, Irish. Um, and so what you have starting out in the 1840s and really taking hold in the 1850s when there's this whole nativist, nativist movement right. um, in this country is you start to see the roots of conflict between these two different classes. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what is going to explode in, in the 1860s and then even worse in the 1870s um, that is going to kind of get 
tossed into the uh, the storm that is going on in American politics related to the Civil War and related to rapid industrialization after the Civil War is over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the the toxic brew um, that is right. being that is being uh, put together in in the coal regions of eastern Pennsylvania. Um, when the Civil War breaks out, um, we're going to largely talk about Schuylkill County, um, which is a um, part of this coal region um, that is located um, just northeast of, of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So for any of you who have ever had any Yingling beer or gone to visit the Yingling Brewery, uh, Pottsville is at the center. It's the county seat of uh, Schuylkill County. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Civil War breaks out in 1861, uh, this part of Pennsylvania is going to be uh, fervently, uh, the majority of their citizens, fervently pro-Union. Uh, and so some of the first troops that are going to get to Washington come from this part of Pennsylvania. In fact, there's a, a regiment um, that is going to become known as the First Defenders. Uh, they're going to be one of the first Union units that gets into Washington after the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Wow. Um, and many... Hundreds and then thousands of men from this same area are going to join up, go off to war. This county, Schuylkill County, is going to send um, more men uh, in terms of percentage to fight in the Union Army than just about any other county in Pennsylvania in terms mm-hmm. of its population. It is very pro-Union. Um, and so these men go off to war at first for three months. Then many of them sign up for three years um, in the first year of the war. Um, but what happens at the uh, in Schuylkill County, on the home front, is that uh, many of those men who were the Germans, the Welsh, the English, that management class, have gone off to fight. Right. And so who are left right. behind? The working class, the, working the Irish. Class, yeah. um, and so many of them are going to be staying and working. They don't support the war by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, there are Irishmen that do go off and fight from this part of the country, uh, from this part of, of uh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, this area is going to see uh, many of these men stay home. Mm-hmm. And they're quite content to stay out of this war, out of Lincoln's war, um, out of this war that uh, they believe is being fought uh, for emancipation. These these right. are Irish Democrats. They are going to be very anti-war. They're worried about their jobs. They're worried about their jobs. And they're also worried about class and, mm-hmm. and getting a step up. And so they're viewing the war as an opportunity because what happens right at the beginning of the war, there's a lot of um, economic, there's a, a minor depression um, because of the country coming apart. Um, it's not going to be until a little bit later when these men are really going to realize that there's a big opportunity here because the price of the commodity that they are pulling out of the ground mm-hmm. goes through the roof in 1861 and 1862. The, the right. price of coal in this country in the north skyrockets because of its importance. It's fueling now war industries. Right. Um, it's fueling iron. It's fueling railroads. It's fueling um, the, the United States Navy uh, likes to use coal from uh, the Scranton area because it burned virtually without smoke. Mm-hmm. And so if you're out there hunting blockade, blockade runners on the, on the ocean on the eastern seaboard, um, you don't want to be giving away your ship's position um, by sending up huge plumes of black smoke. Right. Um, and so it gives you an opportunity on the, on the high seas. Right. Uh, and so... What these miners, what these, uh, by and large, laborers, they are unskilled laborers, by and large, um, this Irish working class, uh, what they realize is that they can organize themselves and that they can get better working conditions and better pay for themselves. And so what you see from the start of the war is that these men start to pull themselves together. There are no labor unions at this point. Uh, there is a, right. a early union that will form just after the Civil War. But at this point, it's just in individual communities, these guys get together and they decide we're going to walk out of work um, because we want higher wages. Mm -hmm. Um, The price has gone up. We want our uh, our wages to be consummate with that. Right. Um, with that rise, with that rise in in uh, in commodity price, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's what's going on on the home front. Mm-hmm. Um, with the conflict as the war is going on and the the excitement for these men going off to war begins to wane by 1862. Um, when in the summer of 62, the Union Army needs more men. What they find is that these part of parts of Pennsylvania uh, and other parts of the Union, men are not 
as willing to volunteer to go off to fight. They thought this war was going to be over fairly quickly. That is not the case. It, uh, by the summer of 62, it's very clear that this is going to be a longer conflict. And so what uh, the politicians uh, in places like Harrisburg in Washington realize that they're going to have serious difficulties in raising the amount of men needed for this war effort. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in Pennsylvania, they're going to start to consider a draft. Mm -hmm. um, what happens in July of 1862 is there's a, an act passed through Congress, um, which is going to uh, say that we need hundreds of thousands of more men. These are going to come from the states. It's essentially the last effort to try to really hold together the old militia system um, that fuels okay. men to go off for the first for the first year of the conflict right. and dates back to the revolution. Uh, and so when there is difficulty filling those quotas from each of the states and each of the regions within the states, Places like Pennsylvania realize that we need to actually start mandating that people come from these specific areas. They're not filling their quota. We are going to fill their quota by drafting them. So the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania itself is saying this, not the federal government. Correct. The okay. federal draft will not go into effect. That legislation won't pass until March of 1863. But Pennsylvania... Mm -hmm. um, power of the state is going right. to start to say, okay, we are going to, we need more men from this, these specific areas to fill their quota. Now, what is, you know, base, basically what is inside that logic is that, well, those areas that didn't fill their quota are the areas that are more anti-war. Correct. And so <laughs> what this right. means is you're going to start to really piss people off. Right. Uh, people are going to start to get angry. Yes. Um, and so this part of, of Pennsylvania, Schuylkill County, these Irishmen, by and large, who wanted to be left alone, although um, there are uh, anti-war politics amongst non-Irish um, right. in this part of Pennsylvania as well. Um, but it is the Irish, by and large, that are going to, as a block, um, going to rebel against, um, against state and federal authority in this part of, of Pennsylvania. Um, and so when this, the, this drafting of militia um, is going to start taking place in, uh, in the fall of 1862, in, the, month, in the, the weeks after the Battle of Antietam, this is when people really, really start to, uh, start to get up in arms about this and then literally are going to take up arms. Um, the first notice of this is going to start to come. Um, there's a great newspaper from, um, it's great to read now, Republican newspaper from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, called the Miner's Journal. Um, it is being edited by a guy named Benjamin Bannon, um, who is as rabid uh, Republican as you possibly could be. Um, he uh, writes many, many editorials about Republican politics and war aims during the Civil War. Um, and Bannon is a great source of, of news and information from this part of Pennsylvania, although he comes with a very, very obvious uh, slant mm -hmm. um, towards Republican side. But it's still it, his newspaper gives you information about what's going on there. And at the end of October of 1862, this is when you really start to see that there is a, a real fervor amongst uh, amongst this these uh, a couple of specific districts just outside Pottsville, um, two townships specifically, one called Cass Township uh, and another called Newcastle Township. These are just outside Pottsville. Uh, they're very rural areas. Um, there are towns in this part of Pennsylvania called patch towns. They're essentially company-owned towns. Um, right. There are several company-owned towns in these in these townships. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the only people who live there, by and large, are the laborers who work in those mines. Mm -hmm. And so with many of the uh, with many of the the loyal uh, unionist citizens going off to fight, it leaves large groups of anti-war uh, citizens in right. those communities. Right. And so as in the, in the fall of 1862, as the state is trying to draft men to fill the quota, they're sending officers into these, into these districts. And those officers are consistently being attacked. They're being jeered. Mm. Uh, they're throwing stones. Citizens are throwing stones at them. In some cases, they are shot at. Uh, wow. Then sheriff's posses will get together. They go in to try to restore peace. Uh, they are attacked um, <laughs> and expelled from the community. It has essentially become a lawless area. Right. 
It's a um, rebellion in itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They are rebelling against uh, against any authority. In this case, even local authority. Right. Uh, even at the even at the local county level. Wow. Um, and so by this point, and this is by September, October of '62. Uh, by this point, uh, Ben Bannon, the local newspaper editor, is saying. Psh, we need federal troops. We need to restore law and order to this part of, of, of right. our area, of, right. of our county. Um, but it's still not – hasn't come to the attention of, of the state government on a larger scale or the federal government to this point. You get to the end of October of 1862, though, and this is where those light laborers, those Irish laborers who have gone on strike several times already um, during the, the war um, years – this is where they get a little bit big for their britches. And so they start to decide, well, you know, we've gotten together at a local level. Why don't we try to spread this opinion, this uh, this rebellion to districts outside? Mm-hmm. And so what they decide to do is they're going to take up arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, based out of these two townships, Cass Township and Newcastle Township, all of the workers there walk off the job fully. They shut down the mines. Um, they're in, in some cases the the people that own those mines, um, if they are unlucky enough to live in those districts, they're going to get out of there, right. um, because this becomes a very dangerous, toxic right. brew, um, of opinions in this area. And so they get themselves out of there. Uh, and essentially it has fully become lawless. Um, and they are going to start spreading that, um, mm-hmm. outward, that rebellion. So are they sending like, um, <clears throat> emissaries out to get the word out and say exactly. hey we're doing this you should consider doing this as well yes so they're going to neighboring communities and beginning to try to not so much at first it's much more like an emissary they're sending uh folks out there to say hey are you interested in um in taking up this this rebellion with us right. um and uh they're going to be sent out and by and large they find a very cool reception okay. um in in some of these neighboring communities um, so what they're going to do instead is they're going to actually, f- uh, take up arms and move on to these other communities. And so they start to spread out, uh, the thing that is going to put them on the, on the map and on the radar of people like governor Andrew Curtin, a very pro-war, uh, Republican governor of Pennsylvania, friend of Abraham Lincoln's, um, and on Washington as well, uh, on their radar screens is that 500 of these men go to a neighboring community called Tremont in western Schuylkill County. Uh, Tremont has a railroad going through it. Uh, And so what these 500 armed men do is stop a train loaded with the militia that is going to uh, to going wow. to Harrisburg eventually to be sent on to Har- to uh, to Washington, uh, and they stop this train loaded with recruits, tell them to get off and go home. Wow! And so now what you have is armed uh, <laughs> armed insurgents right, right. Uh, who are trying to stop recruits going off to war to fill the quotas, uh, and so now you have an armed insurrection. Right. And so Andrew Curtin freaks out. I was going to say, that's going to piss a lot of people off. Yes. He <laughs> freaks out. And so yeah. he immediately sends a telegram on to, to Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. Uh, and Edwin Stanton's going to say, uh, okay, uh, you uh, requested uh, – Andrew Curtin requests federal troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, he requests U.S. Army regulars, uh, veterans, um, who have seen combat already. Uh, and uh, Stanton comes back to him and says – yeah, I don't have any of those available to you, but whatever troops that may be uh, in Harrisburg or on their way to Washington, you can commandeer those men uh, and use them to put down this rebellion. Basically, what goes on is a couple days of correspondence back and forth in which Andrew Curtin eventually gets um, uh, at least one regiment of, of troops, uh, of infantry, a regiment of cavalry, and a battery of artillery. Now, are these Pennsylvania troops? Some of them are Pennsylvania troops. Okay. Um, what is going to end up happening is that there are troops from several other states that are okay. also uh, regiments that are also going to be thrown into this a little bit later. Okay. Um, but uh, some of these are Pennsylvania state troops. Um, and I believe the, the battery of artillery may have been a uh, U.S. Army uh, battery of artillery, a, a regular unit. Um, so I was going to say that would cause a problem in itself where you got Pennsylvanians going up against other Pennsylvanians now. Yeah. You know, that's that's an issue. Yeah, it's you know? a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And uh and and the main thing the the 
the reason that Curtin freaks out is not only because he has armed insurgents in his state, um, but also because the area in which these men have taken up arms is mountainous. It is rugged. It is isolated. And so what they fear the the state officials and also in Washington, what they fear is that they send men into these areas and they get ambushed. Right. And they get uh, these locals know the terrain. I mean, it's a classic insurgency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's guerrilla it's the worst work. nightmare. Yeah, exactly. For anyone going in to put down a rebellion. It's what we feared after Appomattox, that the rebels would go into the woods of North Carolina and you'll never be able to flush them out. Exactly. And that is it, that is the biggest fear for, for Curtin uh, and, as it turns out, for the Lincoln administration. And so they're going to send these troops uh, into Pottsville, so the county seat, which is just a couple of miles away, um, basically is a show of force. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to try to antagonize the locals. They're not going to try to, to send armed men into these districts in order to, to shut them down. Um, this rebellion peters out without violence. Uh, there is um, but one death um, that occurs during this, and it is accidental. One of the, uh, one of the rebels um, accidentally shoots another one of the rebels oh, wow. um, <laughs> in, in Cass Township. Wow. Um, and uh, that gets reported in the in the press. Um, but other than that, it, it is bloodless. Um, what ends up happening in bringing this rebellion to an end uh, is that there's kind of some uh, um, utilizing the uh, culture and religion of these men who have taken up arms against the, the state and federal government. Um, the Curt- Governor Curtin uh, and the federal government call upon uh, the Archbishop of Philadelphia. Um, Bishop Wood, uh, who, and they go to him and say, uh, you need to convince your, you need to get your, uh, local priests, um, to convince these men to put down their arms. Wow. And that is ultimately what is successful. The clergy gets called in and they're going to bring it. They're going to be the ones who are basically going to talk down, uh, this rebellion. Uh, the men put down their arms, they go back. Um, many of them are going to go back to work in the weeks after this. Um, and quiet is restored to the region. That quiet is short lived. Um, because around this time in 1862 and then into 1863, uh, there is going to be this continual, um, return of violence. Um, it is going to be different. There's not going to be a, a large scale uprising on the sort scene in October of 1862, which brought the fear of God into, uh, into <laughs> curtain, into right. Lincoln. Imagine thinking of this from Lincoln's perspective. Um, he is dealing with the, uh, aftermath of Antietam. He's looking at, um, you know, what, what's going to happen next. There's still fighting. There's still combat going on. He's got uh, elections to deal with. Uh, and so Mm -hmm. this is, this is a big deal. This is about public opinion. If he has a a large, uh, region in a populous state like Pennsylvania taking up arms, it looks terribly political. Uh, It looks terrible politically for him. Right. And it's a hell of a resource area. Yeah. That coal. Oh yeah. So then you're, you're talking about driving the price up. You're talking Mm -hmm. about, uh, shortages. I mean, it's a nightmare for him. Right. Um, and luckily they're able to use some asymmetric warfare against these, uh, against these rebels to basically bring them back in, into line. Um, another element of this that I found in my research that really compelled, uh, some of these some of these rebels to take up arms um, is conspiracy theory. Um, oh, really? One of the local one of the local newspapers, the Democratic newspaper, from which un- unluckily for all of us, not um, too many issues survive, but mm-hmm. it was copied in a Gettysburg newspaper, um, and this basically said that uh, the uh, this is leading up to leading up to the rebellion just before it takes place. Uh, the headline is contrabands in the coal region. And so this newspaper article published in Pottsville by a Democratic newspaper essentially spread the theory that the Emancipation Proclamation was put in effect by the federal government to bring African-Americans out of slavery and put them to work in the coal mines of northeastern Pennsylvania, thus expelling the Irish from the lower class of the mines wow. uh, from the region. And right. so um, this is, I mean, it's classic kind of, uh, you know, racist, 
kind of politics that you're going to see in Pennsylvania and other parts of the country uh, right up to the current day. Right. Um, that fear of those in the working class that another class of people is going to be brought in, whether they mm -hmm. be slaves, former slaves, or new immigrants coming in and taking their jobs. Right. Fear of uh, the other. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so that is what um, may be one of the contributing factors to this rebellion and what is actually um, – encouraging them to take up arms. Mm -hmm. um, but this is not the last of the rebellions. There's going to be kind of a, it's the largest, um, mm -hmm. but there's going to be kind of smaller scale uh, violence that is going to take place throughout the rest of the war. Um, this is what uh, becomes kind of the, uh, the the beginnings of what becomes known as the Molly Maguires, which mm -hmm. um, from my part of Pennsylvania is just synonymous. I mean, you grow up hearing stories of these guys. Uh, basically, the Molly Maguires is an organization um, of kind of loosely organized um, of Irishmen who are going to take take you know become violent in in the search of some means, uh, in some ends, I should say. Um, so in the 1860s, it's all about the Civil War. Right. Um, in the 1870s, a decade later, it's all about um, about labor and, and organized labor and attacking the bosses, the superintendents, uh, and of the mines that these men work in. Mm -hmm. um, and so this organization, this loosely organized group of men, gets their start, allegedly, mm -hmm. in the Civil War time period. And you'll start to see the hallmarks of this kind of violence. So instead of the large-scale uprising, what you'll begin to see is very uh, isolated cases of extreme violence. Uh, and so what that means is instead of everybody taking up arms, a couple of men, maybe 15 to 30, will take up arms. Um, there's one case of a uh, superintendent just east of Pottsville, a place called Beaver Meadows, uh, who in 1863 is going to be violently assaulted in his home, shot to death. Wow. Um, one of the theories behind why he is attacked and shot to death is that he turned over his company payroll to those men who are enrolling men for the draft. Oh, and yeah. so it all gets tied yeah. together. Now you have labor um, and and issues of about about labor versus capital, but also you have the conflict over the war and the objectives of the war and what the war is all about. Who's going to fight the war? Right. And so that kind of violence becomes more prevalent uh, later in the Civil War. You also see run of the mill. I mean, there's attacks on newspapers that are pro union. Um, you see attacks and beatings of of um, some cases of Union soldiers who return um, of different ethnicities. Um, this is the kind of violence that takes place. Uh, enough of that, uh, so much that, so much so that there are going to be a, there's going to be a permanent garrison of federal troops in Pottsville for the rest of the war. Wow. About a thousand men, roughly, will be in the coal region, there to put down any rebellion that mm -hmm. may take place. Has this event? during the civil war has that influenced public memory in that area of the war or or maybe memorialization of the war because there is this kind of tension going well it is tension going on between uh the sides who are anti-war and the sides who went off in those early days is there like a a divide still on that issue or is it kind of like glazed over as far as we we fought for the union and as a state and that's that's what we're going to keep it at yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up because there is a there is a tension. Um, I didn't really realize that there would be a tension until I got into it. I started reading. Um, there's a couple of really good books about this. Um, Grace Palladino wrote a, a wonderful book called Another Civil War, and it's all about labor and capital uh, and some of these uh, very strictly into the labor issues. Um, with with uh, a bit about the the ethnic tensions as well um, in this region. She writes about this. Um, there's another book called uh, um, Making Sense of the Molly Maguires, mm -hmm. um, which also talks about the Civil War roots um, and pre-Civil War roots of Molly Maguire violence in, in the coal region. Um, but what I found interesting is as I was doing research for this, and my father also became very interested in this as well. So on a visit to a local historical society, he brought this up. He said, oh, you know, do you have anything about the, the violence that took place here and some of the anti-war? And one of the people that worked there was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. This area was very patriotic and supported the union. And, and so you had that right. in, in that case, and that's just one anecdote, one individual, um, you see that kind of, uh, no, this is our narrative of the war. How mm -hmm. dare you try to complicate it? Right. Um, right. 
but by and large, I'd say that when you look at the memory of the Civil War in that area, it, for the most part, is about the heroism. It's about putting up on a pedestal these guys, especially because they have a, a unit that gains renown for what it does at Petersburg, the 48th Pennsylvania. And so they're going to put them up on the pedestal, and they're not really going to talk about the things that happened back home. Right. Um, that story kind of gets forgotten. But then after in the 1870s, when there's uh, more Molly Maguire violence, more ethnic and, and labor related violence, uh, what you end up happening is there's a series of huge, <laughs> some would say show trials, uh, okay. trials of the century for these Molly Maguire, alleged Molly Maguires um, that participated in this violence during the Civil War and in the 1870s. Um, once those trials take place, once those trials end with the execution of, of numerous individuals, um, all of that side of the Civil War gets wrapped up into that story and kind of put separately from the Civil War story. So there's mm. the Civil War in Schuylkill County, right. um, which is rah-rah, heroic patriotism. Everyone went off to fought, fight and died at uh, Second Manassas or Antietam. Right. Um, and then you have the Molly Maguire story, which is separate. And there was violence here during the Civil War. And often the, the two don't meet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And through your research, it's, it's kind of met, your research and others, it's kind of met in the middle and said, well, this was taking place at the same time. Mm -hmm. The narrative is not just black and white. There's a lot of areas here where they're coinciding with one another. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They coincide. It has everything to do with politics. It has every, everything to do with ethnic tensions. It has everything mm -hmm. to do with uh, the money, who controls uh, who controls the industry, uh, what about the working class. All of this gets thrown together. And, and it, the Civil War, really, when you're looking at it on the big big stage and in terms of the bigger picture, I mean, that's what you see all the time, is that all of these different, you know, it's funny in introducing, say, a military historian and me interested in, in labor, right. um, the Civil War is where these all get mixed up and muddled together, and mm -hmm. you really can't, it's difficult to really pull them apart, because um, in some of these cases, you're going to see the, the stories mingle very much together. Um, but it is interesting about the kind of public memory of this and and how it the story either gets told um mm -hmm. in the culture in an area like schuylkill county or doesn't get told or is forgotten um it's interesting because you know free state of jones is a great example you have this right. part of um you have this part of of um alabama um and that is very uh you know a confederate state where you have unionist sympathies and, and people who are against the Confederacy and against the war. In Pennsylvania, it's kind of the, the reverse where you have, uh, let's just say in Free State of Jones, you have a group that you can really identify with and say, right. huh, that makes a lot of sense why they would go against the Confederacy uh, in the 21st century. Right. Now, when we look in Pennsylvania, you say you have a union state that is fighting for the union, sends uh, more men to fight for the union than just about anybody else except New York. Why the heck are there this group that is there fighting against the war, against emancipation, uh, against all of these things that are going on that are, you know, we say in the 21st century are good, good things, good, admirable, uh, you know, expectations of what the Civil War is going is going to be about. Why are they fighting against it? And that makes it complicated and messy right. and not easy to talk about. Right. Um, and, you know, I think we should talk about that more. Uh, the The... They're talking about, uh, I, I find that uh, when talking about the Civil War, and I've worked as a public historian at Civil War sites for about five years now, um, and uh, one of the things that I find most upsetting is when people try to make it simplistic and they try to make it um, take out the complexities of, of, say, morale. Why did men fight for the Confederacy? Well, they didn't own slaves, uh, so they must not have been fighting for slavery. And it's just like, that kind of simplistic explanation of the war um, really makes makes our understanding of it as a wider culture really difficult and really fuels the the current kind of again I come back over and over again to toxic brew um, right. but it is it's right. it's a toxic topic to talk about it is difficult to talk about people get really angry about it and that's because when we're trying to pop these simple narratives and say no it's a lot more complex people really don't like that right um they really are not um they're, they're not 
excited about it. They're not um, happy to have those those easy explanations um, kind of blown up uh, mm-hmm. and, and to say like, you know, even in this part of Pennsylvania that sends more men off to fight for the union than just about any other part of the state in terms of the percentage of its population, they have the strongest anti-war views there right. uh, and are willing to take up arms for those views. Right. Um, that's really important. We need mm-hmm. to understand why they did that, um, their inspiration. Um, and I will say, just taking a step back, and I know I'm talking quite a bit, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, the hard part about telling this story is that it's only a one-sided narrative. Um, because what we have is the records that survive or the official records correspondence between Harrisburg and Washington, between the governor and the secretary of war. Um, but what you, you don't have is the other side, uh, by and large, the population that takes up arms is literate. Um, they're either illiterate or their records that they kept don't survive. The, we don't have the, the letters, the diaries, the, the things that they wrote because most of the time they didn't write anything. Right. And so it's really hard to tell this story in that area. Um, and, and that's not just for the, that's not just for the 19th century. I mean, this is up through the 20th century as well that, um, and you can look at this from a class level as well. It's the, uh, the middle to upper class, the wealthier, the, the, the capitalists, if you will, um, that are going to be the ones that are writing the history, telling the stories, because they're the ones who are writing things down uh, right. and have the the time and the capability of writing that history and writing those stories. Mm-hmm. The working class, the 19th century, many of them don't have the ability to read or write. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get into the 20th century, you see they don't have the time um, to be able to to sit back and and write a letter to their family member or to, to keep a diary. Uh, they're Correct. concerned yeah. about keeping uh, body and soul together. Right. Uh, they're concerned about uh, where their next meal is going to come from, uh, food, shelter, the very basics of uh, and and not to mention that this is a dangerous industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an very. industry in which yeah. I mean, uh, arguably one of the most dangerous occupations in American history. Right. Um, mining coal, whether that's in Pennsylvania, or West Virginia, or Wyoming, it's right. a dangerous, dangerous occupation in the 19th and 20th century. And so you have to take that into mind. The stress mm-hmm. that's on these people um, during the Civil War. It's another one of those inspirations that might drive a man to to take up arms uh, in uh, against a conflict that he views as against his interests. Correct. Yeah, and if if he thinks that his uh, livelihood is going to be taken away from him through those fear tactics and through a war that he sees strictly as an abolitionist war, they're going to have blowback like that because they want that's the only work they've ever known. Absolutely. And they don't know what else to do. So if you take that away from him, what does he have? And, and also, like you say, the class thing is there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of these men, like you say, they may be – low class and what what uh people would say is quote low class society back then Mm -hmm. but they're still higher than a slave oh yeah and they and they think of that too they're never going to be at the lowest rung as long as that's going on and that's the same for southern yeomen too absolutely and 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 i'd say it's probably parallel with what some of these guys are thinking too that hey at least i have a job and i'm free Mm -hmm. i'm not down at the bottom of the wrong so to speak and you know they are worried about what's going to happen if that's taken away yeah it, well. so it's interesting that you bring that up about southern yeomen and and about free state of jones and that kind of um in our public kind of remembrance of the war uh, this is the one of the most northern outposts of the appalachians i mean this right. is i mean you're talking right. about an area that is very similar in terms of its geology uh, to a place like Kentucky, to a place like northern Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the same kinds of areas in which there is isolation um, because people at this point uh, are living isolated from other people. Um, in this case, in, in Pennsylvania, they are living in small towns. But those towns are, I mean, not normal towns. They're company towns. Right. Uh, these people don't actually own their land. They don't own the house they live in. Uh they shop in the company store with company currency. Right. I mean that 
you have to take that into account too, that it's, it is different than the Southern way of living, but at the same time, these people have some of the same motivations. And I think that slavery yeah. motivation is incredibly strong. And you see it in the conspiracy theory. You right. see it that, um, oh, they're going to bring these people in and we're going to be cast out uh, and put onto that lowest rung. Uh, that's a strong, strong argument for these folks. Oh, yeah, because not only do you lose your job, you lose your house and everything because you don't own that house. Exactly. And, and, and that's just a different dynamic yep. all to itself. And yep. yeah. these, are, these are, by and large, unskilled laborers. They, right. are, they have no training. They are there to, to lift things, to push things, to carry things. Mm-hmm. Um, they fear for their, for their place in society, even though their place is that isolated and on the far edge of society, they fear that it could get worse for them. They still have a place. They have a place. And that's, yeah, and that's they what's have a important place. to them. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a fascinating history that we often overlook, sadly, mm-hmm. because we don't, when we think of labor history, we think of like the early 20th century. Oh, yeah. We don't think about what was going on in the, in the 19th century, especially when there's a, a large-scale war going on. Mm-hmm. We don't think about that, even though that industry is supplying the war effort mm-hmm. as well, not only with men and material, but or, or not only with men, but material as well. Uh, and it's a really fascinating thing, and I've, and I've really enjoyed that blog post yeah. on that. And uh, I want to point people in the direction of your site again, so can you give that to me one more time? Yes, it's winninghistory.com. It's W-Y-N-N-I-N-G history.com. Usually writing in there uh, once or twice a week um, with uh, different topics in history, culture of uh, this part of Pennsylvania where I grew up that I feel really strongly about its history. Um, it's It's a story that's really important now i feel like um this is a part of pennsylvania that uh often gets kind of thrown into the mix politically now um, an area that has historically voted democrat that flipped to vote republican in 2016 Mm -hmm. um and you can really start to understand the area's politics today by looking at the history and culture going back to the 19th century right and that's what it's all about is connecting ourselves with that past Mm -hmm. and understanding why certain things are going down and why things are happening yep and i really appreciate your time jake for being on here and and putting up with my recording oh no this has been great i've i've had a wonderful time i thank you for the opportunity and uh yeah i hope uh hope anyone out there listening everyone out there listening um takes a look at the blog um absolutely and feel free to reach out to me i'm on twitter uh facebook instagram uh would love to have any questions or if you just want to you know chat about this this kind of history this is uh this is my game i really i really love talking about this thanks for the opportunity oh thank you thank you very much and thank you everyone for listening